Oh man, good morning y'all. It is great to be here. It's great to be together with God's people. We're going to open scripture together, but before we do that, let me just ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we call upon you this morning. Father, we long to experience a Father's love this morning. We thank you, Father, that you've given your Son, Jesus, that we might have a Redeemer, a Savior, who could bring us into forever fellowship with you as sons and daughters. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you've been sent from the Father and the Son to help us know that we really are your children. Lord, as your word is read this morning, as we uh, meet with you, would you take from the things that are true of Jesus and make them real to our hearts? Lord, help the one who speaks. My sins overwhelm me. And yet, your grace overwhelms me all the more. And Father, it's overwhelming to think of all the suffering that's happening in the lives of people here this morning, unspoken to so many, and yet, you meet us. Father, may the word comfort the afflicted this morning. And Father, may we go from here prepared a little bit more to celebrate and rejoice and be glad that our King has come, and He's coming again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you see a friend after a long time of not seeing them, you run into them and you say, what? What's been happening? If you're um, in the family room, you're watching television, and, and suddenly from the kitchen you hear a loud crash. You call out and you say, what happened? Or you're driving down 95, and in your rearview mirror, you see a, a person, they're flying down the right-hand lane, all of a sudden they cross over all two lanes, and then they end up right in front of you, and then they slow down. Now, after you say what you want to say, the next thing you say is something like, what are you doing? What's been happening? What happened? What are you doing? And I find in my own heart, I find myself asking those same questions of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel far from God and you're asking the question this morning, God, what are you doing? Maybe you're facing something in your life and you say, God, what happened? Maybe you feel like you've been cut off in traffic. You say, God, what are you doing? If that's you this morning, you're in good company. If that's you this morning, you're looking at a fellow struggler. I can remember not so long ago sitting on my porch it had been a particularly hard season in my own heart. And I cried out to God in prayer and I said, God, what are you doing? And the honest plea of a child of God heard in the ear of my loving Heavenly Father responded, I'm loving you. And I have the promise of Scripture, and you have the promise of Scripture, too, that what is God up to? Our God is up to good. 
Our God is up to good. In this sin-scarred world, our God is up to good. In this year of so much suffering, our God is up to good. And if you're here this morning and you're confused by what God is doing, I want you to leave here this morning, if you'll stay with me, I want you to leave here this morning more confident that your God, our God, is up to good. Now, why do we need it? We desperately need to know that our God is up to good. I have a friend, he's a small group leader. He's been a small group leader for 20 years, maybe more than 20 years at Good News Church. In the last several years, he's buried over half a dozen of his small group members. How do you keep going? How do you keep going? You keep going when you know your God is up to good. This year, in the midst of COVID, he buried his most recent small group member, his wife. And as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, it brings me such comfort to know that the truth of Scripture is that our God is up to good. What do you do? When you bring your child home from the hospital and they're a cherub, they're perfect, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, and it doesn't take very long before you realize that they're just a viper in diapers. What do you do? What do you do when you realize that the child that you're raising is a rebel, is a sinner? What do you do? You cry out, God, show me that you're up to good. What do you do when your own response to that child isn't patient, tender shepherding, but anger and hurt and loud words? What do you do? What do you do? You go to a God who's up to good. You go to the word of God and you say, God, show me that you really are up to good. And that's what we've been learning all through the book of Genesis is that our God is up to good. He really is. In creation, our God is up to good. In six days, he made everything. And you remember what he said? It's good. It's good. And even in the fall, in the fall when, when sin had wrecked everything, our God said, I'm going to bring about good. I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a son born of a woman for you. That's what this week is all about. That our God is up to good even in a fallen world. Our God is up to good in redemption, that he would send a savior to seek and to save that which was lost. And we've seen throughout the book of Genesis, hero after hero after hero, and we wonder, is this the one? Is this the one born of a woman? And the answer for every single one is no. But they all point to the one who would come, whose name is Jesus. And Jesus, in coming, has done something so permanent, so radical, that he could say to us that the best is yet to come, that the last 
thing in scripture to be revealed is the consummation of everything and everything sad is going to come untrue. Oh, the best really is yet to come. Our God is up to good. And we come to Genesis 50 and I'd invite you to go there. And this is our last study in the book of Genesis before next year when we continue to see what happens with Israel in the Exodus. Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. These first verses of Genesis 50 bring us face to face with the reality of death. Maybe no one's ever told you, but none of us are getting out of this alive. You have a one in one chance of facing death, your own and you have a one-in-one chance of facing death, the death of somebody you love, what do you do? What do you do? Joseph wept. And the Egyptians wept. And when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die, and in my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Joseph calls in his chips with Pharaoh. Joseph has been a favored servant of Pharaoh. He served him well for many, many years, and now he needs a favor. He needs help. So he calls in his chips. But he does more than that. He appeals to a shared value with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I promised. I promised my dad. And Pharaoh can understand that. Pharaoh understands loyalty. Pharaoh understands family. They share that in common. Listen, what's easier? To find things that divide us or to look for things that unite us? Joseph understands he has more in common with Pharaoh. And so he appeals not to their differences, but he appeals to that which they have in common. And you will have much better chance of sharing your faith in Jesus with lost people if you look for those things that you share in common with them, just as Joseph does with Pharaoh. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. It's like a giant date night. Kids stay home. So there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. 
and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. There is a grief in death that is normal and expected and that we must pass through. But why, why do the Canaanites call this the mourning for the Egyptians? Why is it called the field of mourning for the Egyptians and not the field of mourning for the Hebrews? Jacob is a Hebrew. Joseph is a Hebrew. Why do they call it the mourning place for the Egyptians? And what Moses, who wrote this book, what Moses is doing in narrative form is revealing what Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. That you would grieve, but not as those who have no hope. That there is grief in Joseph and there is grief in Egypt. But the grief of the Egyptians is so much greater because they don't share the hope of the gospel that Joseph knows. Joseph knows the gospel. He knows that God is not the God of the dead, but the living. The sure and certain hope of a coming resurrection fills Joseph with hope in the midst of his father's death. And so he grieves, but he grieves with hope. And if you would take the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ deep into your heart, if you would receive the hope of eternal life through Jesus, it will be a sure foundation of hope that you could say, even in the face of death, my God is up to good because he's not the God of the dead, but the living. That is what the Canaanites see. They see a difference between Joseph and the Egyptians. So verse 12, Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And so they go back to Egypt. But as they go back to Egypt, it dawns on the family of Jacob that maybe everything has changed. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back? in full, for all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here's the hope of the gospel. Joseph's brothers are terrified. They know what they need from Joseph is forgiveness. Forgiveness in Hebrew literally means to carry. They know that they are guilty before Joseph and someone is going to have to carry the weight of that guilt. Either the brothers are going to carry it, which will lead to their destruction because they are clearly guilty. Or Joseph can carry it. But the sin between Joseph and his brothers will be carried by someone. Someone has to carry the debt. Someone has to carry the load of the sin, the transgression that has come between Joseph and his brothers. Either Joseph will carry it or his brothers will carry it. And Joseph, his heart goes out to his brothers and he says, I tell you the truth. The bad news is true. You meant evil against me. Joseph doesn't say, oh, you know what, guys, don't worry about it. Listen, it's no big deal. We'll let bygones be bygones. We'll just look. We'll sweep it under the rug. No big deal. No, he says the truth. He tells them the bad news. You meant evil against me. But he doesn't underplay the good news. God meant it for good. Our God is up to good. Joseph says, the bad news is bad. You meant evil. Oh, but the good news is good. Joseph doesn't forgive his brothers because he's nice. Joseph doesn't forgive his brothers because he's generous. Joseph doesn't forgive his brothers because he loves them. Joseph forgives his brothers because God is up to good. And Joseph knows that his good God has been working for his good and for the good of the world. And so he says, in the present, God has brought about this present result. Joseph doesn't look back on all the past hurts. He doesn't pull out his list. He doesn't say, you did this and 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 this. He doesn't get historical. He gets present. God intended it for good now. He doesn't gaze into all the past hurts. He lives in the present reality of a God who loves him and loves his brothers and loves the peoples of the world. And he says, my God is up to good. And Joseph, as he lives with God in the present, has the boldness to look ahead to something better. Verse 22. So Joseph stayed in Egypt 
he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Makur, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you will carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph knows that the best is yet to come. His experience with God in the present gives him a sure foundation to look to the future, not with pessimism, but with hope. He has a reality regarding suffering. He has a reality regarding sin. But he's not undone by it. He's not undone by it. Because he's able to look to a future filled with hope. How about you? Do you have a future filled with hope? In Jesus, you do. In the promises of God's word, you do. Do you live in this present sin-scarred world with suffering? Yes. But your heart your heart is designed to receive the promise of eternal life. Your heart was made to live forever with God. You are eternal, made for God. Your heart is stubborn. My heart is stubborn. My heart wants to dwell in past hurts. My heart wants to be toenailed to the present present happinesses, present prosperities, present joys, present health. And what the gospel wants, the gospel wants my stubborn heart to let go of past hurts. The gospel wants my heart, my stubborn heart, to not cling tightly to present joys. The gospel wants me to have a sure and certain future hope that my God is up to good and he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion and he'll do the same for you. And that's why if you will take your stubborn heart, this is not easy. There's no simple four-step plan for overcoming hurt, for overcoming the guilt of sin, for overcoming the present sufferings of this life. It's not easy. Our hearts are stubborn and life is hard. But if you'll take the action step for this week and you'll apply it to your life again and again and again and again, then your heart, the layers of bitterness and regret and shame and hurt will begin to be peeled away. We lived in a 1926 Craftsman bungalow in West Palm Beach. It was an old house. 
when you have an old house, you know what old houses have? Lots of paint. Layer after layer after layer after layer of paint. That's what our hearts have. Our hearts have layer after layer after layer of hurt and pain and suffering and regret and blame and defensiveness. And the gospel comes and it peels it back. Layer after layer after layer after layer. And it covers our heart as we remove a layer. It wants to cover our heart with the righteousness of Jesus and the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit that can take the promises of God's word and assure us that our God is up to good. So how do we do it? How do we get the promises of the gospel into our heart? Here's the action step. This isn't a one-time action step. This is a This is an action step you'll do for the rest of your life. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. What do we do to peel the layers off our heart? Go to Jesus. What do we do with our hurt? Go to Jesus. What do we do with our guilt? Go to Jesus. What do we do with our shame? Go to Jesus. What do we do with our suffering? Go to Jesus. What do we do with our pain? Go to Jesus. What do we do with our doubts? Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus again and again and again. Eight years old. My TRS-80. My teacher telling me, here's basic programming. Ten. Print. Dave is awesome. 20, go to 10, run. Dave is awesome, Dave is awesome, Dave is awesome, Dave is awesome. 20 years old, new programming. Jesus is awesome. For the rest of my life, go to Jesus. 20, go to 10, run. Run the programming of the gospel in your heart. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus for forgiveness. Joseph's brothers, go to him for forgiveness because they know they're guilty. Two words, transgression and sin. Two words, transgression. They know they've crossed a known boundary. That God's expectation was love and care and support for their brother. And they crossed over. They transgressed God's word and sin. They missed the mark. God's word said love one another. And they didn't love Joseph. They hated him. They missed the mark. Sin and transgression. Who is going to forgive? Who is going to carry the load? It's either going to be them or it's going to be Joseph. Who's going to carry your load? Who's going to carry your burden? Who's going to carry your your guilt? It's either going to be you or it can be Jesus. Go to Jesus for forgiveness. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus Christ carries our burden of sin. He is the only one who could do it. The sinless one became our sin bearer. The one who knew no sin 
became sin for us on the cross. All the burden of your sin was picked up and placed on Jesus. And at the foot of the cross, the burden of your sin can go away. And Jesus can bear for you in your place as your substitute the full and awful penalty that your sins deserve. He'll do it. He's done it. Go to Jesus for forgiveness. What do you do with your heart's struggle with sin? You go to Jesus. And oh, did you see Joseph's heart? Joseph's heart is Jesus' heart. When his brothers come and they say, please forgive us. Do you know what the heart of Jesus is towards you? When you cry out to him for forgiveness? Is that it? No! Joseph wept. And Jesus, his heart goes out to you in your sin, in your struggle. Jesus weeps for you. He loves you. Go to Jesus for forgiveness. Carry your burden to him and let his heart of love go out to you. His love is so much greater than Joseph's love for his brothers. But Joseph shows us a picture in his weeping of the love of Jesus that will go out to you even in your sin. Jesus, go to him for forgiveness. Go to Jesus for assurance. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. That there is an assurance of salvation offered in the gospel. That the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That you can know that you know that you know that you are in Christ. You can have assurance of your salvation. Go to Jesus for that assurance. Go to Jesus for that assurance today. Listen, you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. But there is offered to every child of God an assurance. And it may be missing in seasons. It may be missing in the darkness of suffering. What the psalmist calls the valley of the shadow of death. It may be missing for a time so that our Father might show us our dependence upon Him. It may be missing for a season, but it's your privilege as a child of God to have an assurance of salvation. So go to Jesus and ask Him to give you the assurance that His heart is full of love for you. Go to Jesus for forgiveness, for assurance, for hope. For hope that the best is yet to come. One day soon, our present world will be overtaken by the world to come and everything sad will come untrue. Just as Joseph pointed to a promised land, Jesus Christ points to a future glory that he is going to make all things right 
Jesus is going to establish a perfect creation. He will restore what was lost in Adam's sin. He's, ex- he's secured it through his death and resurrection. It is certain to happen. And we await with all the children of God the coming of our King to establish forever and ever the final state of things. The best is yet to come. Come back next Sunday and hear Andy speak on the promise of heaven. How do we get this? How do we get it in our heart? How do we press the gospel in? How do we go to Jesus? Three suggestions. Number one, shout! Some of you need to shout to God. Help! Shout! What is the healthiest thing a newborn baby can do? The healthiest thing a newborn baby can do is cry. When you hear a newborn baby cry, no one says, what's wrong with that baby? Everybody says, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And some of you need to shout to God in prayer. Some of you have a problem. You don't shout loud enough when you're praying. Shout, God, help. Oh, the love of the Father that would run to you. Shout. Sing, sing. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. We have a good, good father. Or as the older hymn says, this is my father's world. Some of us need to sing. Some of us need to sing and press the joy and melody of the gospel deep into our heart through song. Shout, sing. One more, sit. Sit. Some of you are so beat up, so dead tired, so overwhelmed with your sin and the struggles and sufferings of this present world Some of you are so hurting. It's all you can do to sit. So sit. Sit at the feet of Jesus. And let his love for you meet you. Meet you at your point of greatest need. He's for you. He's for you. He's with you. And he's coming again to be with you. Let's pray. Father, Father, we rejoice to think that your love for us, immense, free, lavish, amazing, overwhelming, is not sentimental. It's real. In the person of Jesus, you have come near to us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, you have come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You've carried our burden of debt, our guilt. You carried it to the cross. 
And you carried the duty of the law and you obeyed the law perfectly for us so that we could have a righteousness before the Father. Holy Spirit, you've been given to help us see Jesus. So Father, I pray if there's any in the room this morning who who are seeing Jesus for the first time, if that's true of you, would you just call out to Jesus in prayer? Jesus, I admit I've sinned, I'm suffering, I need you. Jesus, I believe that you love me. You demonstrated it on the cross. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the dead for me. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to be Savior and Lord I want you to help me become the person you want me to be. You lead, I'll follow. Father, all of us, from our hearts, cry out, Abba, Father, help. We cry out, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Bring into this present world the reality of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.